Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Halloween is just around the corner. And if you aren't drinking a brew from the cauldron, here are some creepy wine suggestions for October 31st. My name is Kimberly Livingston. I'm sommelier at Pearl and Ash, working with Patrick Cappiello. And for Halloween, I was trying to think of something that would be fun, maybe a little spicy, a little bit rich and red. So, Quinado from uh, Barolo. Yeah, I think it's a great fall drink. Something a little bit off the beaten path, maybe. A nice and spicy, toasty, warming you up on a cold and Halloween night. <laughs> I want to drink Quinado like every night of the week. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great idea. But especially Halloween. Halloween's awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Nacho, Halloween is approaching. What are you going to be drinking on Halloween night? Well, I'll be working at the daily that night. So for anyone that wants to come over and have a creepy night, we have an awesome cocktail called Sand Wing which is um, fresh blood oranges. We have some absolute in that. We also have a little bit of cumbia, and that is topped with a sparkling rosé, and finished with a, a little bit of rose water on the top. So it's uh, red and vicious. Sanguine, doesn't that mean blood? Yeah, it, it actually translates to blood in, uh, from French. Yeah, so it's amazing. It's a really refreshing, creepy, uh, Halloween, I won't be pouring it here, but I'm pouring it at home. Uh, Joseph Sparkling Shiraz from Australia, McLaren Vale. 100% Australian, uh, so especially with the festivities, I always get a sense of uh, I want to be home around family, so I bring a slice of home to myself. And uh, for me, Halloween's kind of a bit freaky. <laughs> it's that awkward moment. You don't know if New Yorkers are just dressing normally or they're a little bit strange or if it's people and they're actually in their Halloween outfits and especially being here on the Bowery you step outside and you're like yeah I'm not sure it's a bit of a grey zone so I like to sort of keep inside and uh, open a nice bottle of wine for myself. Definitely helps that it's like a red sparkling wine kind of creepy. Oh very creepy blood red all the way (laughs) all the way. I'm going to be drinking the Brokenwood Graveyard Vineyard Shiraz. Oh that is so scary it's it's the one that's planted on a graveyard right? It used to be a graveyard. From ashes to dust to wine. Indeed. So, around Halloween, in keeping with the spirit of all things scary, I like to think about going back to the previous name for Zinfandel, 
pre-1900s, which was Black St. Peter's. There are some great examples of this wine coming from Lodi in like central California. So I look to some of those producers to get uh, some of these wines. Another great scary wine for the October month, in my opinion, is the wines of Etna from Sicily. So I love these beautiful volcanic Norello Mascaleses, Paso Pischiato, Tenuto de Terraneri, and Frank Corneliusen with his non-vintage crazy blend are definitely some of my personal favorites. And I like to have these available to spook people with. And it's very scary drinking a wine from a volcano. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I just love their smoky character and just natural funkiness that they possess. Um, that they possess? Yes, they are possessed. So there you have it. Some of the creepiest, scariest beverages to sip. All I can say is, I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Antonio Galoni on the show today. Hello, sir. Levy, it's great to be here. So you were born in Venezuela. That's right. And your parents were in the wine business? Um, well, my dad was in the um, in the importing and exporting of, of seafood when I was a kid. Uh, my mom's American. My dad's Italian. They happened to meet there. You know, my mom was doing social work post, you know, liberal arts college in the 60s. And my dad was a classic post-World War II emigre, you know, where you have nothing. Dirt, basically nothing. Dirt, dirt poor. The family puts all of their, I mean, it really is like a, like a, like a movie. The family save, puts all of their savings to send the, um, the oldest son to the new world. And then my dad becomes a successful entrepreneur, you know? So he's always been a huge inspiration because I figure if he can do that from nothing, I should be able to, uh, you know, build a successful business. But yeah, my, my dad was in the importing and exporting of seafood. And that was really my first, uh, just from the very beginning, my first foray into food. You know, my dad, I would spend Saturdays, today's a Saturday, I would spend Saturdays with my dad calling on his clients, going to the market. Uh, my dad sold fish to the airport of, of Caracas. I would go watch the Concorde take off, go see the kitchens and so the immersion into it was first food was really young, you know immediate and young um and my parents always had wine at the table you know it wasn't necessarily always the greatest wine but 
my dad did teach me when I was a kid that there were only two great wines, Barolo and Champagne. <laughs> so it's a pretty good start. Um, and I so think always, it's a family emblem. It's yeah, like the, <laughs> right. There's a crest. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it was just the fact that, you know, wine and food are central to life. Uh, you know, those are still values that I, I cherish, as I'm sure you do as well. You do as well. But uh, just the idea that food and wine are really central to life. And so I grew up in a family that was really into food and wine. Um, and, uh, and it was just a great education. So you ended up moving to Boston to attend Berkeley School of Music. And yeah, well, my first, you know, my parents then had a, a wine retail shop, which is, you know, where I worked when I was a teenager and in college. And so that was, that continued my, my immersion in wine. It was mostly uh, Italian and French wines. Um, and then, yeah, I went to Berkeley. My, my parents were devastated that I didn't want to take over the family business. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people have been through that too. Um, but I wanted to be a musician. That was really my passion. So yeah, I went to Berkeley and, uh, that experience was really seminal for me in a lot of things that are important to me today. Uh, I played all kinds of music, Levy. I played, I played in a rock band when I was in high school. Um, I played in a jazz big band, so like 1940s swing style, like really traditional jazz, uh, guitar. I um, then went to school to Berkeley and I was at the time very inf influenced by people like Pat Metheny and John Abercrombie, Mike Stern, a lot of people who had gone through Berkeley one way or another, Mick Goodrick, and that was jazz improvisational music. Uh, and so the four years at Berkeley were fundamental for me for a couple of things. One, I started writing my own music uh, because I was an average musician, but I was really inspired by Miles Davis. And I knew that I was an average musician, but oh, average is on a good day. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is what happens, right? You're, you're like a, you're like the sort of like the hotshot in your small little town. And then you go to the big city and you realize, holy, you know what? I'm just one of hundreds, thousands. And I've had a lot of friends go through that and some people, it devastates them. And I was very fortunate that I was able to just sort of refocus my energies. And I started studying composition. And I started writing music because I realized I was an average musician, but I knew that if I wrote music, since very few people were doing that, I could attract the best players into my bands. And so I became very, this was a Miles Davis concept, right? You always want to surround yourself with people who are better than you and you create the environment, which is what we're doing now with Venice. We're just creating the framework. Um, and so, so I had my own bands, they were usually, you know, four or five people. It was improvisational music. I wrote all the music and then I picked the best players I could and, you know, allowed, allowed them to sort of elevate me. And, uh, it was just an incredible experience. And so again, that was highly, uh, improvisational music, but I was also studying a lot of classical music, conducting, uh, Mahler symphonies, you know, Wagner operas, everything. And so, the biggest takeaway for me from music, which is something that I really believe in today, is that quality exists above style. And um, you know, I played in Berkeley's country band for two years. You know, people did look at me and they'd laugh. It's like this Italian kid is like playing the mandolin, but I loved it. You know, uh, and that is what music taught me. It taught me to appreciate quality above style, and that's the way I think about wine today. So you know, I played in a country band. I played you know the most far out improvisational jazz you could imagine. Um, course rock music i was in this really first two years i was in this real sort of like you know u2 cure kind of like gothic influence kind of rock band too you know practicing in a warehouse in the worst neighborhood in boston you know it was so much fun that's and, sort of like u2 in ireland yeah it's somewhat similar exactly and so it's like i you know i did all of that stuff and i i loved all of it every minute of it was great uh and but that that time there was really important for me in kind of understanding that 
you have to be able to, I mean, at least in my opinion, of course, you have to be able to recognize the, the peaks of quality above and beyond style. You know, I had one teacher who said, you should spend at least one day a week listening to music you don't like. And that's just to have really broad, uh, sort of broad, um, a broad perspective. So I did everything, atonal ear training, uh, Schoenberg, you know, you know, 12 tone music, Bartok string quartets, you know, I studied all that stuff. And it really, um, even today, as I mean, as you can tell through my enthusiasm, it's still a, a four years that I value tremendously, you know, plus it really inspired my creativity. And you also did a stint in the financial world. Yeah, I did a stint in the financial world because, uh, so after college, what happened was I was really burned out on music. And, uh, I had this girlfriend at the time who wanted me to have a more responsible job. <laughs> and like a lot of people, I was waiting tables post-college trying to figure out what I wanted to do. This was actually how I became uh, exposed to really to California wines in the first first time. It was the first years of Harlan and you know, Alban and Kathy Corus and all these people. And so I was selling those wines, but uh, I had this girlfriend who wanted me to have a more serious job. And it was like sort of the time of the tech boom and everything else. So I got this job um, in a mutual fund company in Boston in the late 90s. And um, since I spoke a bunch of different languages and I had I had obviously a lot of stage experience, and I'd done acting and theater and all this stuff, I was a very natural sort of presenter. And uh, they said, you know, you speak a bunch of languages and, you know, why don't you go through our training program and you could have this beautiful career here. And at the time, it just seemed like there was nothing to lose. And so I just went for it. And, uh, you know, a few years later, one of the most senior guys calls me into his office and he said, look, you know, We've got this business in Milan. It's a $10 billion business. We need somebody who speaks Italian. Would you like to go be an expat in Milan for three years? I'm like, okay, great. So that was a fantastic experience. So I spent three years in um, in Milan. This was before the Euro, so everything was cheap. Uh, traveling around Italy, a little bit in Spain and Portugal, but mostly Italy, explaining financial markets and our company's view of the performance of our mutual funds, where markets were going. You know, we had a lot of different things that happened, obviously uh, 9-11 right in the middle of there. So very tumultuous times, um, but it was a great experience. So th this is when I, I had traveled to Italy a lot as a kid uh, because my family's Italian. We'd spend a lot of times in the summer there, but those three years I went everywhere. I mean, every region in Italy, I was there um, talking to people about financial markets, explaining what was going on in the markets, giving them an American perspective, and then you're going out to dinner in Naples or Rome or Palermo or Bari or you know all the other places that are much better known to people. Of course, Tuscany had a lot of clients in Veneto, a lot of clients in Lombardia, uh, some in Friuli, pretty much everywhere. So I was eating the food and tasting the wine, and it, it just triggered this incredible response, you know. Uh, and then I got to a point in my financial career where I felt I was just—I mean, I had never studied finance or anything—and I was really—I felt I was really lacking in education. So. I said, you know, I really should go to business school. And um, I said, you know, what's the hardest place I can get into? <laughs> it's sort of uh, masochistic. But I just thought, you know, what is what are the most difficult places that I could try to aspire to get into? And so I made a list and I said, well, I really want to go to a quantitative school because I didn't have any quantitative background. So I said, what are the best quantitative schools in the States? And, you know, I applied and I got into most of them and uh, I was just shocked. But they always need one person to kind of balance everybody. So I, in the meantime, I met my wife, Marcia, and I wanted to be on the East Coast, so I went to MIT. And uh, that was another great two years. But that was the end of finance and the beginning of wine. <laughs> so let's talk about Marzia a little bit, because to me, she seems like the eminence gris of, of Vinyas Media today. I mean, she's 
planning. She's setting appointments. She's making sure you are got the tickets. She's uh, copy editing. She's setting things up. And uh, just seems like a powerful person, powerful intellect, very organized, ready to go. Is she Antonio Galoni's secret weapon in a way? Or? Yeah, but probably like times two. <laughs> no, I mean, we've worked along. So basically what happened is at MIT was the beginning of Piedmont Report. And she was there pretty much for the beginning of that too. So it's now almost 10 years that we've worked together. And, uh, you know, yeah, it is an unbelievable privilege to have somebody who knows all of your ins and outs, all of your quirks, which appointments you like back to back in Piedmont or Burgundy, you know, uh, which champagne tastings to set up here or there. I mean, you know, it's unbelievable because basically uh, she is, it's as if there's two of us really. And so, um, and so, yeah, I mean, she is really the person who keeps the ship really moving. So there's no question. I mean, I could never do anything, any, you know, could never have gotten to this place if it weren't for her. There's no doubt. So you did start the Piedmont Report, and how did it get going? Well, so there I am in business school, and fortunately for me, I uh, I took a lot of credits in the first year because by the second year, I had really lost a little bit of interest. I mean, you know, there's always a question, right, Levy? I mean, does formal education, is it good or not good? And I've done both um, because I'm self-taught in some things, but I've also had a world-class education in others. And so, you know, there is really no substitute for natural talent and passion. And I saw that in music because the best musicians at Berkeley were brilliant the moment they walked in the door. The school polished them up, it gave them connections, it introduced them to people, but those kids, and I had the privilege of playing with some of them, they were brilliant the moment they walked in. I'm talking about a guy who would pick up a drumstick and the minute he starts tuning his drums, it sounds like the most beautiful sound you've ever heard. I mean, we're talking about virtuosic level. When I went to MIT, it was the same thing. The brilliant men, women there, they were brilliant the moment they, they before they got there. The school just took them to another level. And so I realized there too, I'm sitting in options classes and derivatives and stuff, and it's like way over my head. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I've got three bottles of Barolo in my house. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, well, gee, you know, I think I'd rather be tasting wine. So I started writing about wine in, in school when fortunately I had already done most of the work, but I was so inspired by what people were teaching, you know, how to do pricing, how to do strategy, how to think about technology. And, um, you know, MIT is usually thought of as a technology school. A lot of people don't know that it's just as strong, perhaps even stronger in entrepreneurship. So I'm surrounded by all of my friends who've done venture capital, they've done private equity. And I am so grateful that a couple of people said to me, look, your passion is wine, you have to do wine. If I hadn't gone there, I wouldn't have been so pushed, so inspired by my peers. But that's really where people said to me, and sometimes you need kind of that kick in the pants. You need somebody to say, this is your passion. This is what you have to do. It was so obvious to my friends, maybe less so to me. So I started writing about Italian wine because, um, so I just, just spent three years in Italy and the weekends I was mostly by myself. So I'd go and travel and taste. And at the time, you know, there, you know, there was the wine spectator was very strong, uh, and still is, but at the time it was James Suckling. And, you know, at the Wine Advocate, you had Daniel Thomas's, but he was sort of sporadic and, you know, not always reporting. And so I just thought there was an opportunity and I had all of this knowledge and it was firsthand knowledge. This is something I've always believed in is that everything that I write is not something that I've read somewhere else or that I heard or a rumor. It's firsthand experience, right or wrong, whatever it is, my opinion, but based on physically talking to people. And so I just had all this material, it was just sort of waiting to get out. And so I started publishing this newsletter just uh, 
for me and my friends basically. And it just kind of took off, you know, one day you wake up and it's like, wow, Piedmont Report has readers in 25 countries. How did this happen? Um, but it was just, I think, kind of like being in the right place at the right time. And that newsletter, uh, it resonated with people. And so that was the beginning. Did you find it important to have a certain kind of writing style at that time? Did you think about how you wanted to put that down on paper? You know, it's one of those things, Levy, it's kind of accidental. Um, I started writing and people said, oh, gee, you're a good writer. I had no clue. I never studied writing. You know, my mom was a journalist when she was younger. Um, so there must have been some sort of genetic predisposition there again. But, you know, I wasn't a particularly good student in English. I got kicked out of class once or twice for unruly behavior, you know, so there's nothing in my background that would have led you to say, ah, you know, this person is going to do this. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't a good student ever in school. I was, you know, not, I was more interested in music and girls, you know? So, you know, there's nothing in my background that would say, ah, this is, you know, such a clear choice for you. I started writing, I started writing with passion, firsthand knowledge. I was drinking and buying these wines alongside my readers. And I think that that is a style of writing that tends to resonate with people when people feel if you look at who's been successful, there's something about them being really invested in their regions, uh, that they have a lifetime of knowledge that they have, that they're buying and drinking these wines, that they're exalted when the wines are great, disappointed, just like you are when you, a wine doesn't necessarily turn out as well as you had hoped. And so I just started writing from the perspective of a consumer for other people who loved Piedmont wines. And um, it just kind of happened, you know? So you start publishing the Piedmont Report in 04. You'd, yeah. you'd kind of conceptualized it in 03. Yeah. So that range of vintages, you're looking back four years because it's Barolo, and you're seeing the development of, of climate change. You're seeing 97. You're seeing 99, 98. And then also you see 2003 happening, like you go and visit them. To, yeah. And I assume it was you know, maybe a little warm. Uh, so warm that a glass of wine in a restaurant would go from being cool to undrinkable in 10 minutes, 03. And so you look back and what was that as, uh, I mean, how does that time compare to now in terms of the modern versus traditional debate, the climate change that was happening, the uh, increased planting in Barolo at that time, because the vineyards started, there started to be more of them in the late nineties in Barolo. Uh, what'd you see at that time? Well, you know, so I would just peel that back a few years more to the time I was living in Italy, because that was the year when I lived in Italy, it was when 96 and 97 were being released. So two obviously very different vintages. And I drank more than my fair share of 96 Barolos, sometimes on that expense account. <laughs> I guess I could say that now. Uh, you got to drink something. But um, no, seriously, you know, those wines were being released and um, being there while those wines, while those two very different vintages were being released in the height of the popularity of super modern wines was obviously very interesting. Then, yeah, I came back to the States. 98 is a vintage that kind of got passed over a little bit. 99 is the greatest overlooked vintage in Piedmont in many years. And then when I started writing Piedmont Report, it was 2000, 2001. And so, and then as you said, 2003 towards the tail end of that. But yeah, so a very interesting um, set of um of vintages. To me, I always viewed, when I started writing Piedmont Report, my goal was just to give people the true, uh, I wanted to show the true breadth of the region. And if you look at the wineries that had a presence in, in the United States, the the modern producers obviously had a huge profile. And Marco de Grazia, no matter what you 
want to say, agree, or disagree. He is the person who made those wines popular to a broader group of people. Then whether you like them or not is kind of secondary relative to the exposure that he brought on a more global, not meant global as in world, but just to the broader consumer market of those wines. So you had that, those wines, and they were obviously very well distributed, well represented in the States. And then the traditional producers were almost absent from the public conscience, except for Bruno Jacosa, because he was with Winebow at the time, and obviously great distribution, great access uh, to Bob for, for ratings. And so uh, those wines had a pretty good reputation. But after that, you know, these wine, the traditional wines were mostly known to a select group of wine geeks, retailers, Barolo lovers on the two coasts. And, you know, I remember going to um, a tasting in uh, 2005 or so at Crew, which was hosted by Doug Palaner with Mauro Mascarello and Roberto Conterno. There was a, you might've gone, there was a press tasting like in the morning, I think, or lunch, and then a dinner at night. Uh, you know, nobody knew those wines back then. Today, you, you could, you wouldn't even do such an event because it'd be like doing an event with Christophe Rumier. I mean, you know, it's like, of course the wines are great. Why do I need to do anything? You know, so... When I started writing about wine, I wanted to give people the true, I wanted to show the whole breadth. And so, you know, you could go to Rinaldi, for example, 10 years ago. And, um, you know, the idea that a wine will sell out in a calendar year is a pretty recent phenomenon, in Piedmont at least. You could go to Rinaldi 10 years ago and buy four or five different vintages that they had, little smatterings of. Today, he bottles the wine a month later, it's sold out. Um, Capellano, nobody knew about Capellano except maybe Jamie Wolf, you know, and a few other people like us. Um, Bartolo Mascarello, maybe a little bit more because Chatterton had, you know, even though it was always unclear exactly how the wines were being distributed, they were making their way. Um, and, and, and that was it, you know, Francesco Rinaldi, the quality was still sort of so-so and they had all those old vintages that were sort of weird in the market. Um, Brovia, you know, was almost unknown in the States when I started going there. Uh, and so, um, it was just interesting to see and to watch and um, and to write about these producers. And, uh, you know, I think that the, one of the things Piedmont Report did is it did show people a broader perspective because I was actually going there. I wasn't dependent on people to say to me to organize tastings or to say these are the wines you need to taste. I was going as a consumer and I was going there to write for people who loved the wines. And when I would go to Rinaldi, I'm like, how could people not know how great these wines are? You know, how is it possible? But it's possible. Capellano never wanted his wines rated. So, okay, you know, that's kind of understandable. But there were a bunch of these producers who, you know, nobody was really paying attention to. Not all of them great, too. You know, you've got Acomasso and La Morra, whose wines are kind of a little funky. But still, you know, um, I would go there. Nobody used to go. Nobody would go there. And so uh, it was just interesting to watch that time. And I think it sort of coincided with a greater awareness of those wines in general. And um, yeah, fun to be there for sure. So when I think about Antonio today, it, it, it's kind of like what you said about the musical link, which is that you can appreciate this kind of wine. You can appreciate that kind of wine. And it, the difference between those two things is often stylistic. It's not terroir. It's, it's not quality. It's just they're made differently. And when you talk about Degrazia bringing things in at a time, did it help you to start you're writing in a region where there was such a stylistic divide that you had to say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to cover both of these things. And then later, I'm going to keep covering all of these different things. If you had started in a region where the stylistic divide was less clear, do you think you would be as Catholic in your taste today? Well, I think the answer to that is I never saw that big division at all. Um, thank God there are people who make wines in a different way, you know? 
thank God all wines are not exactly the same. That would be so boring. Um, you know, the wines that I buy are, you know, I buy a lot of different wines because it depends on who's coming over for dinner, what I think they might enjoy, what I think we're going to cook. And there's sometimes I want to drink a wine from Roberto Voerzio, and there's sometimes I want to drink a, you know, a Mascarello Monprivato, who's another producer who was totally off the radar up until a few years ago, oddly enough. And so I just have never seen those big divisions there. Yes, of course, you know, one guy uses rotofermenters and does three days on the skins and somebody else does 30, but I'm interested in the, what's in the glass. And the day that sealed this for me was the day that, you know, usually you try to put your appointments obviously in some sort of some way that makes sense geographically, so you're not driving all over the place. But one day I had this tasting with Roberto Boerzo. I tasted all of his wines from the barrel. And then for some reason, I had to go to Giacomo Conterno right after, which is a bit of a drive. And tasting these wines from the barrel, what really burned in my mind, it seared into my mind, was just how pure the Nebbiolo grape is, can be, and that these wines were not anywhere near as different in their raw stage as people as they end up over time, uh, it's a question of elevage, but they're both really beautiful things. And the thing about a guy like Voerzio, just like Altare, is that his wines age exceptionally well. And so the second experience for me that was really important was, you see the guys like Angelo Gaia or Jacosa or Conterno, they could skip a vintage. They had, if it wasn't a great year, they wouldn't bottle. They didn't need the money, Aldo Conterno, they could just pass. The little guys, they needed to pay the bills. Voerzio had to bottle a 91 had to bottle a 92. Same thing with Elio. And when you taste their wines from the crappiest vintages that anybody can remember, and they're still alive at, tw at 20 years old, and you know that those, those producers were at the very beginning of their general awareness of how to do stuff, that to me is extraordinary. That a wine from a poor vintage is still great 20 years later, made by a young producer at the beginning of their career, tells you how great those soils are, how great that grape is, and that the these people basically know what they're doing. Then whether you like the wine or not is a secondary characteristic. So I never viewed that stylistic divide as, obviously it existed, but I just try to explain to people what the way each producer makes their wines. So it's never been my goal to say, this is what's good or bad, or you should drink what I like or don't like. My goal is to say, this is the landscape. This is my view of the landscape. And within that, these are the peaks of excellence. But I want to help people find wines that they like, not drink the wines that I like. That's useless to, you know, that's not that, that's not that relevant. You know, I think the, 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 the role of the wine press should be to help people figure out what they like by giving a broad overview of what's available. And then, you know, you figure it out for yourself. You have to do a little bit of trial and error. It's pretty fun homework though. Did Robert Parker help you decide what you liked when you were reading his publication earlier in your wine purchases? What Bob had has um, that very few people have is this extraordinary passion. It comes through in his writing. You read what he writes and you it makes you want to taste something. It makes you want to go out and buy a bottle of wine to experience it, to see if you're going to get the same feeling. And there's just very few people in the world who have that. It's a gift. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say that, that, that Bob directed me in towards of what I would like or what I wouldn't like as much as his passion was definitely an inspiration at the beginning um, as a consumer, as a wine lover, um, but then maybe in some small way to sort of, to, to try to capture, you know, what is in that glass for somebody, that feeling, that emotion, especially with the world's great wines, they're, they're emotional wines. And, uh, you know, he, he's been brilliant at it, at capturing that. When was your first meeting with the man himself? 
Well, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I think life is made of small moments and you have to be a little lucky and you have to be also in the right place at the right time. But, you know, you always have to follow your gut. And so when I was at MIT, I had Piedmont Report. It was going really well. I didn't know if it should be incorporated, if it should be a LLC or a C-Corp or whatever. So I decided I'm going to go and uh, sit in on this lecture on business law. I was out of credits. I couldn't sign up for this class. I just found out when the lecture was. I went and I listened to this guy talk about this stuff. And uh, MIT was a great school, but sometimes I found the professors too academic, like a lot of people who had never had a real job. But I listened to Joe Hadzima in this class talk about how you decide what you want your business to be from a structural standpoint. And I loved the guy because he was a, a real person with a, who had done this, who was a practitioner. He wasn't an academic. So afterwards, I go, to, the, I go to, uh, to Joe and I introduce myself just to thank him for the lecture, how much I enjoyed it. And he said, oh, you know, a friend of mine runs the website for Robert Parker. I should introduce you. Think about that. It's so random that I decide to go to that class that day, that I am in, inspired by the professor, that I decide that I want to go say hello to him. I mean, it's so bizarre. That would have never happened any other way, but it just, for some reason, something made me do these things. And it's so totally, a total random event in life. But anyway, so I, that's how I met the people at The Advocate. And that was in 2005, this happened very fast. And so, uh, so that was the first one, it was in 2005. You know, I had the first conversations with Bob. You know, I don't think I could sleep the day before or the day after. <laughs> It was quite amazing, you know, and, uh, you know, that was the first, that was the beginning. And so Bob offered me a job in 2005 and uh, the first, the first time I said no, uh, and I said no, because I wanted to be independent and have my own publication. I was watching this thing grow. It was incredibly satisfying. Uh, I was writing it out of my apartment like this. Um, Martin and I were working on it together. We had introduced photography and trying to make things visually beautiful for people too, because I really want people to be engaged, not just look for a score, uh, but to really feel not even just engaged, but almost like they're in the publication. You know, that's what photography and video can do. It can make you be a participant, not a spectator. So uh, no pun intended. Um, so, so the first conversations with Bob in 05, but I really wanted to be on my own. And so the first time I said no. And so, um, but it happened really quick, you know? And then basically the last half of that story is in 2000. So I finished business school in 2006. I go to work for Deutsche Bank. I've got the kind of job I've always had a lot, which is a lot of um, uh, roadshows, presentations and travel and um, a very cool company and a, a unbelievable experience there too. But we had our first child in 2006, and you know I was living in the Upper East Side in a tiny apartment, and we just could I just couldn't be I couldn't have a job at Deutsche of that level with that level of responsibility, plus be a dad, plus be a husband, plus own a business. And so Marcia said, you know, why don't you call Bob and see if that job is still available? So I called him. I was in Miami. I called him. He wasn't around. He called me right back and he said, when I saw your message, I was hoping that it was about this. And as every conversation always went with Bob, it was like, you know, we did a deal in five minutes, you know, it was done, agreed. And that was, you know, sometime in the summer or so of 06. And so then I joined in the fall of 06. What's he like to be around? Awesome. Uh, down to earth. You know, I don't, I don't think people, very few people really know Robert Parker. Uh, 
a, a super down to earth person who just loves wine, food, everything around it. Uh, always got along great with him. Even today, have great relationship and um, just a a super human being, you know, uh, and not really understood by most people. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I think if if an image persists, part of it is probably he doesn't really care or doesn't care to really address it. I mean, you know, but, you know, Bob is a person who would say, you know, the greatest producer of Brunello di Montalcino is Soldera. <laughs> you know, I'm, that's a very Parkerized wine, isn't it? Um, joke. Uh, you know, I, I just think at some point, maybe you can't control the perception. I, I wouldn't necessarily make that same decision, but, uh, you know, Bob is a shy, introspective kind of person. He likes to sort of be, you know, uh, outside of the spotlight in a lot of ways. And so when that happens, you know, sometimes misperceptions can creep in. And once that's set, it's really hard to eradicate, you know. One of the things I've noticed about Bob is he's incredibly enthusiastic when he writes, like you said. Yeah. But he also s sets up a way of writing that makes you feel like he's just talking to you, like you, the private person, reader. Um, and he doesn't make it feel like it's a big group of you that are reading this. He makes it feel like he's like reaching just to you. And uh, I felt like that also kind of developed into words that people would move on in terms of moving markets because they felt like this was private advice. And then one day when they discovered that there was all these other people who had the same advice, it's almost like they felt cheated on in a way because he got too popular, but it's not really his fault. Does that make sense at all, or am I just totally wrong? Well, I mean, if that's your perception, then it's 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 your perception, you know. Um, obviously, the enthusiasm is there, um, but you know, when you spend a lot of time in these regions over many many years, you do learn so much, and ultimately, it's really about education, and you are able to transmit things to people. And you know, I do think if we're paying people for our advice, we ought to be delivering something that is value added. And that value add is what you just talked about, whether it's a change in the barrel program, or this person just bought this new vineyard, or this is the new winemaker, or this is the blend this year, or this, or even more importantly, things like where does this wine fit into the great vintages of that wine from a historical standpoint? When should I drink this wine? You know, all, all of that stuff is you know, comes out of a person with a tremendous amount of experience and uh, hopefully it comes through in the writing. So if you found it there, then then I'd say he was doing a great job. So you started with the Piedmont Report and then you go back as the Italian critic for the Wine Advocate. What was the difference? <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, so there we are thinking, well, you know, instead of running this business, we'll just, you know, just write part-time for Bob. It'll just be Italian wine and no big deal, right? I mean, I was so naive, <laughs> but thank, you know, sometimes it's good to be naive. I mean, you just can't, you know, uh, there's no way to talk about what happens when you make this step. Um, you know, the amount of pressure, attention, criticism, it's something, you know, that, uh, you know, that is really intense. Um, but, uh, you know, it was tremendous. I mean, I'd say that, you know, that, uh, I'd say it turned out to be a very good sort of exchange, you know, because obviously I joining the advocate gave me a big platform, uh, but at the same time, and it took a few years, we were able to take the advocate's position in Italy, which was almost nowhere really, and build it up into, you know, one of the top, I think, sources for, for reviews of Italian wines. Um, there were a lot of things like, you know, um, the introduction of, you know, breaking Italy into different regions, you know, really having a person you know, to say, we're going to focus on, 
just breaking things apart. It's not just going to be massive articles that have no geographical delineation. We're going to do, you know, Brunello di Montalcino will get its own article, for example. Um, we're going to do, for example, you know, I don't know, the Northern Italy with little introductions for each section. Southern Italy will be different, uh, its own thing. Even those things, they sound so simple today, but the wine advocate had never really done that. It was just sort of like Tuscany occasionally, Piedmont occasionally, then the rest of Italy kind of all jumbled together. And so we started to have regional things. We started to have verticals, uh, vintage retrospectives. You know, the reason I started writing about Italian wine is that I felt Italian wine was underserved relative to other regions. You want to learn about Burgundy, there are so many sources. A lot of them you have right here on your bookshelf. A lot of great places to learn about Burgundy. You want to learn about Bordeaux, same thing. Um, and so relative to those sort of established global benchmarks of excellence that have existed for generations, I thought Italy was really underserved. And I, my aspiration was, is, continues to be to write about Italian wines at the same level as the best people for Burgundy and Bordeaux. In other words, because my, my view is that the best wines from Italy are just as good as the best wines in anywhere in the world. Napa Valley, Burgundy, uh, Bordeaux, whatever you want. And, and that is an experience that I had going to dinners with collectors where people would bring 89 Obrion and I would bring 89 Giacosa Santo Stefano and it would show very well, if not, you know, kick some major butt sometimes uh, or Quintarelli or Soldera or whatever. So in the early days of The Advocate, it just reinforced my opinion that the great Italian wines are as great as any other widely accepted benchmarks from anywhere in the world. And that inspired me to lift the quality of my writing to match the quality of the wine. And so, so we did a lot of things that had never been done there. So the vintage retrospectives, you know, I did an 89 and 90 Barolo article that I, you know, I'm pretty proud of. Um, also did, you know, I think 2000 and 2001. Uh, I did the first verticals of wines from Southern Italy, Taurasi, you know, Mastro Berardino, um, you know, for example, Terra di Lavoro, uh, Turriga, you know, um, you know, those wines had never been given that kind of importance to be featured in that kind of publication, Montevetrano, every vintage. Turriga was every vintage. Rosso uh, del Conte. Rosso del Conte, yeah. first vintage I ever, I mean, vertical I ever heard of, yeah. someone writing about it. Exactly. So it the, deserves it. You know? Yeah, so the whole goal of kind of elevating. Then I did one of all the great Sangioveses, you know, a couple years ago was, you know, La Pergole Torte and Rancha and Castello di Ama. Uh, because I, my view was always that these wines needed to be taken more seriously. They needed to be viewed as at the, at the pinnacle, these are, you know, Le Pergole Torte is as great a wine as any wine anywhere in the world. End of story, pasta. And, but somebody has to have the perspective to have gone to Rumier and to Meunier and to Costa Estornel and to Krug and to all of these places, Harlan Estate, Bond, to say, okay, this is my opinion. Obviously, you can tell me I'm full of, you know, whatever. But that perspective to say, when you taste the wine, to say, aha, that is, that is at the top. Le Pergole Torte is you know, undisputably one of the world's great wines and to write about it, to give it the importance so that you send that message. Um, and so we did a lot of things at The Advocate that had never been done before. I also introduced video and, you know, a bunch of stuff. But the whole goal was really to to put Italy on the same level as, you know, the other great regions. Does Italy have a marketing problem? Um, you know, Italy is a lot of things. Italy is, there is no Italy. Italy is, um, you know, one of the things that's fascinating is it's this this peninsula it has everything from 
tropical climates and almost desert-like conditions to you go to the north. Alto Adige was part of Austria up until the First World War. You've got everything. And so I don't know that there is Italy. There is a lot of different things. Piedmont is obviously like Burgundy. Burgundy has the incredible fortune of having a guy like Daniel Jonas, who has been its ambassador for years. And, you know, if Piedmont had a similar figure, I think the results would be pretty similar. Tuscany is more like Napa Valley or Bordeaux. You have high quality with scale. And so those estates tend to be much more commercial because they have to be. Not, I don't mean that as a critique, but it's just an observation, just like their peers are in other regions. Um, but there's lots of different things. Alto Adige has the lowest, um, the smallest average holding per family of vineyards. So that's, real, that's why you have all these cooperatives. Uh, I mean, there is no Italy. There's just each region is its own little thing. Sicily is, is fascinating and it's not, now people are just all in love with the Etna, but, but, but Sicily is much more than the Etna. I mean, I love the Etna, nothing against the Etna, but, but there's much more to Sicily than just those wines. Uh, Campania, my God, these wines that go back to antiquity. I mean, you know, the sisters, the monks in Burgundy weren't even born when they were making great wines in Campania. You know, this is probably Italy's biggest problem. It's a, it's a real, it's a lack of realization of how great the places are and how great the wines are. Uh, so, um, but you know, other places have been maybe a little bit more, a little bit smarter, quite honestly, you know, and the, the, the Italy's biggest weakness is this desire to air the dirty laundry. You never air the dirty laundry. You never go to Burgundy and hear somebody speak badly of their neighbor. Never. They will say beautiful wines. Great. Bordeaux, same thing. They might want to kill each other after you leave, but they will never lead a, let a person from the outside understand divisions. In Italy, look at this Montalcino. It's just like the Guelphs and the Ghibellines here. I mean, these people want to kill each other. You know, Let them kill each other, but don't show that to the world. It is so destabilizing to the image of a wine. So if you, if you ask me what's the biggest problem in Italy, it's this lack of unity. Um, it does great harm uh, to the collective good. Uh, and you just don't see that in other parts of the world. I don't see it in Napa Valley either. I mean, I spent five five weeks a year now in Napa Valley or more. You don't hear people, uh, you know, dissing on their neighbors. You just don't. Uh, if anything, maybe people won't say anything, but usually they, what they say is something complimentary uh, because there is a collective sense of, even though people are very competitive, obviously the wines are very expensive. There's no margin for error. The wines have to be great at those prices. That's good. Uh, but you 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 sense more of a unity so in 2008 you got handed the champagne duty as a reviewer for the wine advocate what was the change well i felt there too that you know the advocate needed to be a major how can you be a major publication globally and not not have a presence in champagne i just thought it was a travesty so again you know it's uh, credit to bob i mean he said fine you know talk to david you guys work something out and that was his style you know uh, which is sort of like a hands-off style. So if you guys figured out, we did. I had a conversation with David. He said, fine. And then the advocate went from almost no recognition in Champagne to being like the first publication to write about Cedric Bouchard, Jérôme Prévost, Colin. I'm talking about diversified, you know, big time publications, not not so much, um, you know, the, the smaller publications, which are obviously are going to always be better with focus um, than any diversified publication can be. But, you know, um, I mean, look at a guy like Cedric Bouchard. I mean, he had won prizes in France, so it's not like this guy came out of nowhere, but nobody had really written about him. Now, if I want to buy a bottle of the rosé, good luck, I can buy one, you know? Psalms will get two or three bottles maybe of each thing. Um, and so I'm really proud of that. We took uh, 
The first thing was to recognize, this is again, the stylistic thing. It goes back to music. To me, there's no difference between a grower champagne and a Grand Marc. If the wine is good, it's gonna get a great score. If the wine has a problem, it's not. It doesn't matter whether it's the glitziest Grand Marc uh, that you know wants to show you their impressive domain every time you go, or it's the, the, a farmer struggling to pay his bills. If the wine is good, it's gonna get a great score. It's very democratic, you know, and I think this is a fundamentally American value that, uh, that this, uh, and Bob has that too, the, the idea that it doesn't matter what your pedigree is. The wine is either great or not, or somewhere in the middle, it's going to get a rating that I think in this case, it deserves and that's it, you know? Of course, I could be wrong, we can disagree, but it's not predicated on any sort of lineage or the past vintages or, you know, you've got the most beautiful chateau or whatever. And so what we did there, there's two things with champagne. One is we gave space to a lot of a lot of growers and continued to do that. Marie Courtin, you know, Dominique Morneau's wines, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of things, Fouette de Sorbet that weren't really getting a lot of exposure. Um, and then the next thing with champagne is that what started to happen is I would go to a restaurant and I would see these wine lists and I'm like, well, I don't know these non-vintage wines. It's like, are they, have they been here for five years or did they just get delivered yesterday? And so I decided that we would not review any non-vintage wine without a disgorgement date. And some of my colleagues, writers for other publications had said, gee, it would be great if, you know, there was more disclosure and, you know, uh, David Schultnack wrote a brilliant chapter in the Parker, The Last Buyer's Guide about champagne, where he said the ideal label would tell you the base vintage and the blend, you know, something like um, what Jacasson might have, for example, or Tarlon, you know, with back labels with a lot of information. Um, and so, but I just felt that we needed to take a stronger stand. And I really believe in that with a lot of conviction that non-vintage wines have to have a disgorgement date. It would be better if they had a base vintage, but I thought that was too big of a leap and I wanted to fight a battle I thought we could win. And I th and, and we're winning because every year there's more and more champagnes with disgorgement dates. There's more and more psalms listing the disgorgement states on their wine list. This year, I got a huge delivery of, of samples of wines to taste from somebody who was dead set against us a few years ago. Today, all of the wines have disgorgement dates. It's just a step, it's a progression. I'd like to see, I think it's much more interesting for people if you tell them the base vintage is 08. Okay, now I know 08 is tense, wiry, energetic wines. Oh, this one's base 09, richer, rounder. That's more, that's better, but you gotta go step by step. And so champagne was fascinating because we, I think we elevated the advocates coverage of champagne to among, you know, to where it should be among one of the best. Uh, but then I, you know, the thing I'm most proud of is that, you know, since everything that we've always done is just, or that I've always done before, advocate, during and after is all on the, is all consumer focused and consumer based. The idea that, that there's gotta be more disclosure on, on what is in a non-vintage champagne. So that if it's my favorite champagne is, you know, somebody's non-vintage, I know that if you go buy that wine in St. Louis or New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or wherever, it's the same one. Was there a development that wasn't being so much remarked upon in the OBE that you got a chance to sort of showcase someone like Cedric Bouchard in a way that maybe these weren't some of the big names down there, but this was part of Champagne, although that story hadn't been so much told broadly? 
Well, you know, one of the things that's a limitation of a publication like The Advocate is that there isn't a lot of room to tell stories like that. Um, I think the stories do get told through the producers, but not... There are other people who wrote brilliant articles about the OBE. Eric Asimov wrote one a few years ago um, because that's the style of writing that their publications allow, encourage, whatever it may be. You know, the, the, the Advocate is not a place where you can write those types of stories those stories get told through the reviews that rating the producers um, uh, get. And it is one of the big changes now with Venice. So when I was at The Advocate, there was always this idea that being in the print was preferable to being online. Um, it was a prejudice. And so I always fought to have my articles always in the print. And if you go and you look back, you will see almost all of my articles were always in the print. In order to do that, though, you've got to write concisely. And so that makes it difficult to weave in a broader story. Um, but obviously the, the, the reviews of those producers, I think, highlight what was going on there. But it's one of the things I can do now that I couldn't do before was write more of an arc, kind of a story about a place, a region, a change, before it all had to be integrated. You took up Burgundy and you took up California for The Wine Advocate. Was the experience different, taking up one from the other? Well, yeah, markedly. Um, so at the end of 2010... Um, what happened at the advocate was, uh, you know, Bob was feeling like he needed to slow down. We talked about a lot of different options. There were a lot of different ways that this could have happened that was going to, or the, that it was going to happen. Bob gradually scaling back. Um, he had a lot of different ideas, but ultimately he settled on California being the region that he wanted, the first region that he wanted to step away from. Um, not completely because he continued doing the vintage retrospectives, which we, you know, tasted those wines together for a few years. Um, but I think probably because of the pace of change. I mean, he said to me that was going to be the hardest thing for me with California was just keeping up with the pace of change. So, uh, and then, you know, we had a Burgundy problem. And uh, and so the idea at the end of 2010, we agreed that I would take over California and I would take over Burgundy. So those are two very different setups. Um, stepping into California was taking over from a person who had, kind of defined that industry for decades. And so um, very high pressure, very high expectation, um, fantastic experience that continues to this day, as does Burgundy. Burgundy was very different. Burgundy was a question of, it is my only thing that I kind of, I feel I didn't finish is, you know, Burgundy is a multi-year rebuilding project for the advocate to repair frayed relationships, um, and a lack of focus that I think uh, is unfortunate, um, but it is what it is. When I would go to Burgundy, people would say, you guys are changing reviewers all the time. And I'm like, wait a minute, Bob did this for something like 20 years. Then we had Pierre for 10. Then we had David for six. I mean, it's not exactly like we're turning people over every year or two, but in Europe, the cycles of time are totally different. And this was the comment from, from the Vigneron, you guys are changing too much. It's too much change. So... Uh, it takes years in a region like that to really first to sort of right the ship, you know? And I think, I think I was able to do that at least sort of get back to um, timely coverage and comprehensive as much as you can do for a diversified publication like that. But 
what needs to happen there is a is like probably like a 10-year rebuilding project. You know, it's like the Mayakamas of wine journalism. It is not something that is going to happen in a year or two, or probably not even five years. It's a multi-year rebuilding project. And so that's an enormous task, an enormous task. So they were completely different assignments uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. Were they worried about you in California? You know, here's Bob. He's had his favorites for years. We understand what those are. Here's this new guy. We don't know what he's going to do. Maybe he likes a lot of different kind of tannic wines from Barola. What's the story? I mean, was there trepidation? Well, yeah, huge. I, you know, I think a lot of people obviously didn't know my background. They didn't know that. I mean, and and why should they? I mean, it's not not a not a criticism, but you know, I had been selling those wines since the early '90s, so I had some framework, and I had also been. I knew that this opportunity was going to arise. I had been preparing for it. I mean, you have to be prepared for an opportunity. Things don't just fall out of the sky. So I had been traveling to Napa Valley since 2005, 2005, yeah. Um, not anywhere near as regularly as now, but I was tasting the wines, reading about them, tasting about, tasting them, reading about them, buying them. And so when that opportunity came up, I was as prepared as anybody could be for it. Um, and yeah, I'm sure that there were people who had some trepidation, but I never have played this sort of role of favorite. So the first thing I did was I totally opened up the tastings to as many people as who wanted to taste with me. You know, I think um, this is really a young person's job, quite honestly. It takes a level of stamina um, and it's extremely tiring. And there's a certain point at which your ability to just keep up with things starts to, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't, the schedule I have now is great for now, but in 10 years or 15 years, I don't want to be doing this schedule. So you have to be sort of preparing always for the next step, but uh, it's a job that requires an enormous amount of just intensity. So the, you know, I think part of the problem, not problem, part of the issue was, you know, there were a lot of people who weren't able to get their wines in front of the advocate. And so I immediately opened up the tastings. You know, I would taste with anybody who almost, I mean, not everybody, cause you can't, but I did tastings with a lot of people who had never been able to show their wines. Um, and that was the first, that was the first major change. And so I saw a lot of these, and at the same time, there were a lot of these new projects that they didn't exist when Bob was reviewing wines. Fine Hill Ranch, Gandona, Brand, The Vineyardist, all phenomenal wines. And there's, you know, now there's a bunch of, a bunch of new ones, but this is what I mean, keeping up with the pace of change. I mean, every year there's something new and it's a world-class wine made by a great winemaker or from a great terroir. You know, Vine Hill Ranch has been a great vineyard for, for, for decades, you know, but when the Phillips family decided that they wanted to make their wine, it was as if it was new, sort of new, but not so new. So there's things like that to keep track of that are really, um, that are, that are tough. And so there was an expectation. Yeah. People weren't sure where I was going to fall, um, necessarily on the wines. Um, but the biggest thing was just realizing how vast it was. And so, you know, I, I started to go, um, much more often than, than, than Bob could or would. And, you know, he let me do that, which is a credit to him, but I started to go, uh, several times a year. So now as an example, 2011 is the vintage that's been bottled and is being released. Well, guess what? I, I spent something like 16 days in 2011 during the harvest as these wines were being, the fruit was being picked. I saw it. I filmed it. I lived that harvest. I saw what it's like to be on the valley floor of St. Helena where it's cold, wet, and rainy. Then you drive up to Howell Mountain. It's hot as hell and sunny. And you're like, where did I just, what happened here? Uh, that's 2011 vintage. And so what I started to do was I started to taste these wines twice a year. 
So I would go in the spring and taste the new vintage. A lot of times it's components. You go to Araujo and it's that's block 6A, that's block 6B, totally different. You go to Colgan, that's you know Cabernet from Nine Estate, that's Cabernet from Tixon Hill, that's Merlot from Madrona Ranch. I mean, totally separate wines. Um, you go to Bond and it's like, well, this is Melbury. The wine has never been racked, has not been racked yet. It's a, a single barrel, never been moved. So I started to bring to California the, again, I, I felt that California was underserved. I wanted to write about, I want, and I want to write about California wine, like people write about Burgundy and people write about Bordeaux because that does not exist, which means I'm going to come and I'm going to taste these wines twice a year. I'm going to taste them from the barrel. I'm going to follow them every six months. By the time I write a review on Dalavale or Harlan or Bond or Bryant or Screaming Eagle or any of the dozens of wines that are widely considered reference points, I have tasted those wines four times twice in the year after, and then twice the year that they're bottled. So again, it's this idea of wanting to really elevate the level of what wine criticism and journalism is supposed to be. It's not just about a score. It's about understanding the genesis of how a wine comes to be. When I went to Screaming Eagle this spring, it was like, you know, we're gonna taste the different blocks, three or four Merlots, three or four cabs. That's how you really gain an understanding of, of a wine. And so, uh, again, I, th I thought I felt it was missing. In fact, when I first started tasting wines from Barrel in California, Levy, you won't believe this, but people were so resistant at first, and I didn't understand why. I'm like, did I? You know, you always wonder, did I say something? Did I offend somebody? Did I? Did I? Uh, you know, have I? Do I have three eyes? Have I? Did something come out wrong? Antonio, I think it's. Let's see, it's just one eye. The Galoni's got an yeah, eye. I'm like, so it's what's two, going two on? Eyes. I, I just want to taste your wines like I taste everywhere else in the world. And then finally, somebody said, had the courage. They said, well, you're the first person who's ever asked to taste the wines this way. And we just don't, we didn't know how to respond. And I was shocked. I was blown away. But this is the truth. And so um, now it's fantastic because uh, people have an understanding of how I like to work. So uh, the harvest was very early this year. So people would even bring, you know, they're dry 13s for me to taste. So I would taste them right out of the tank. And and that is what I'm really looking for. I'm looking to have a relationship with wine uh, over the course of its life. I talked about 11, that wine's now bottled, but obviously I want to taste it when it's five years old, when it's 10 years old, when it's 20 years old, so that we can communicate something that's really meaningful about a wine, not just that it's blackberries or, or raspberries. People never write to you and they say, I can't find that mocha note in the wine. That's just BS. It's just a way of making a, a review immediate to somebody because you can sort of figure out, I like red toned wines, I like darker wines, but people always want to know the story behind the wine. When should I drink this wine? Is this a great vintage for Harlan Estate or is it a you know sort of a, a good but not great vintage? Is it an early drinking vintage? Um, how does it compare to the wines in the same neighborhood? You know, context, this is what people are willing to pay for. They, and that's what we should give them. Something that is more than just a number, more than just a meaningful adjective that's you know a bunch of adjectives that are strewn together, but something that is that encapsulates. In this case, it's mine because it's it's Venice. But I mean, that encapsulates our personal experience with the wine. That you know, I don't think there's too many people who can offer that. Who can say, well, I've tasted this wine four times now, and here's where it comes out, and here's where it sits relative to their hierarchy. I don't care if it's Dunn or Hundred Acre or Schaefer or Schrader or Diamond Mountain. I love the best wines in across all styles. And this is the lay of the land, my opinion. I've lived with these wines for the last two years. I hope you find it useful. If you don't, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, it is a work of, it's a labor of love, of passion, and of really trying to get inside into what makes these wines really tick. That is what we're trying to do. You said you went to 
California in 2011 and you filmed The Harvest. Mm-hmm. I started to see around that time more and more in the Wine Advocate uh, short films, yeah. videos. Uh, that seemed like a change. How did that develop and, and where was your role in that? Well, we had wanted to do video for a long time and, you know, I was, I think, the first person to massively do it. I mean, they, we had done occasional video at The Advocate, but very sporadically. And I, my view is always this, Levy. I have this privilege, this incredible life. I can go and taste at DRC or Leroy or with Rumier or wherever, Harlan, Bond, doesn't matter. They're all great wines, but you know what? That experience is wasted on one single person. <laughs> and hopefully it's not wasted, but you know what I mean? It's it's just me and one other winemaker or, or their team of winemakers. But I don't want there to be one person who has that experience. I want there to be a million people tasting lots of Screaming Eagle with me. I want 5 million people to be tasting the, the, the Leroy Burgundies with me. And of course that is impossible, but with media and with technology, we can take people off the sidelines and make them, put them into what's happening. I will show you, we will show you the sorting line at Blanquier in 2011 or Capshandi. We will take you to see, you know, Screaming Eagle. And so it's about making the person a part I don't, this idea that the critic is on some pedestal and speaks down to people is so old fashioned. Of course it existed in the past, but today, you know, I don't like being spoken to. I want to be spoken with, and therefore I want to speak with my readers. Um, Early on in my career, somebody said to me, remember, no matter what, there's always somebody who knows more about a single wine than you do. And I have never forgotten that. Of course, there's some collector out there who's had every vintage of Harlan Estate or every vintage of DRC Romane Conti or every vintage of Krug who will kick my butt on any single wine. My advantage is I taste all of those, the field of play. So I have a perspective of saying, well, here's where Krug vintage fits into the other vintages or here's where where RC fits into the other great burgundies. That's something that only uh, you know somebody like me can even aspire to do. But there's always somebody who knows more about a single wine because they have had every vintage a thousand times, more than you. So you have to always be extremely humble. And I want to take, I don't want to speak down to people. I want to speak across the table like we are speaking now. And I want to put the reader into the conversation. And and video allows us to do that. It's one of many ways we can do that, to put the reader in the middle. I don't want to speak to you. I want you to come and come with me. Come, let's go watch the harvest at Screaming Eagle. Let's go talk to the winemaker. Let's talk to the Schaefer family. That is what video allows us to do. And so what I would do is I would go to these places, Piedmont or Napa Valley or wherever, Burgundy, and I would film video. And then what we would do is like for a week, we would show a video each week. And uh, you know, the technology at the advocate is 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 a little bit old fashioned. So uh, you couldn't play videos on Apple products, for example, still can't. Um, so there's always some limitations, but I tried as much as possible to bring, to make people a part of what we're doing, to build a community of people who love wine, to bring these experiences off the page and make it really tangible and make you feel like you are there. Of course you can't, but this is as close as we can get. And so that is what I started to do with video was to get people really involved. And so now we do that with Venice. Venice publishes four or five days a week. There's something new. You know, the foundation hasn't changed. I'm still going to the same places as before, tasting hundreds of wines or thousands, whatever is required in each region. And that is the foundation of everything that Venice does is critical reviews with the consumer in mind, of course. It's how we communicate that's different. We publish smaller articles because a lot of the stuff that I was writing before was getting lost in the shuffle of thousands of reviews. So now we publish small pieces, but more 
with greater frequency. We've got beautiful photography. They're photos that I take or Marcia takes or one of our other, you know, James who works with us takes. Uh, so I believe in having something that's visually, because I, I have an artistic, definitely an artistic personality. I want our website to be beautiful. I want it to be engaging. I want you to enjoy your time there. So we try to feature beautiful photography. And then we've got a video almost every day or several times a week. We've got a, our Venice favorite, which is our wine under $25. It has to be a really serious wine. We have uh, wine and food articles. It's all about making the person feel like they are in there with us. They are there tasting those wines with me. And, um, and so what we do hasn't changed, but the way of communicating it is totally different. And I want millions of people to have these experiences, not just me. So it's 2011. You're yeah. writing uh, quite a bit of articles for the Wine Advocate. When I would look online, when I would look on the bulletin board, it would seem like I would see your name often. Yeah. yeah. Did you see yourself at that time as the heir apparent of, of the Wine Advocate? Well, look, that was, you know, it's obviously a delicate subject. That was definitely the plan for a number of years. Uh, I gave it, you know, we, I mean, I gave the Wine Advocate my heart and soul for six and a half years. I loved that business. I treated it as though it were my own um, from a from a love, from a passion, from a attention to detail, from always trying to do the right thing. Um, I loved, and today with the Venice, you know, I, I love my readers. I, I, I love spending time with them. Um, but that, you know, that was the plan. And then at some point, you know, things changed and that's life. So you started AntonioGaloni.com, which morphed into Venuous Media. Why the change? Well, I didn't really start AntonioGaloni.com. It's, it's, it's more what happened when I left was, um, you know, I, I make long-term decisions and I make 20 to 30 year decisions and um, they're not always going to be right, but I don't make short-term decisions. So for all of the time I was at The Advocate, I was really focused on The Advocate. Um, and so when I left, I knew we were going to do something new, but I didn't know what it was going to be called. And we just needed basically a placeholder. Um, there was never any intent to really have an AntonioGaloni.com business. Um, it was just really, we took a lot of time to to find our name, Venice, to create our logo. A lot of time was spent on the name, on the logo. And those are things that they take weeks and months. They don't happen right away. So we just needed a placeholder. But, you know, I firmly believe that the first decisions you make are the most important because they set up everything else that is going to happen after. And so the goal with Venice was explicitly to not have a business that was dependent on one person, me in this case. Venice is conceived as a platform a global platform. We have subscribers in 37 countries, a platform for a lot of different voices. <clears throat> we're five months old, so we haven't really yet done a lot of the things that were that, that are in the works, but they're, they're definitely in the works to bring on other writers uh, and to really create a platform that is not dependent on a single person. This is one thing that I learned. I don't really like the way that that the path that that leads you on. And so Venice, there was never going to be an AntonioGaloni.com. It was just a placeholder. When you write for Venice, do you have in mind a particular reader? Do you have in mind a particular audience that you're writing for? I'm just trying to explain what is in the, I'm trying to capture what is in the glass. That's it. You know, uh, we have all sorts of readers. So I, you know, uh, writing for one kind of reader would automatically exclude everybody else. Uh, you know, one of the, my core values is that Venice is meant to be is meant to be inclusionary. So often the wine press is polarizing. It's divisive. And I don't share that view at all. Venice is meant to be a force of connectivity 
You think about the great wines you've had. You remember who you were with, where you were, what the occasion was, everything about it. Wine has this magical ability. It creates these bonds between people. They might last an entire entire lifetime so, or, or even maybe more than a generation in some cases. So Venice is a force of connectivity and it's not a, it's not a, a, a we're not a divisive force. We're a, 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 we're going to be a, a platform. We are a platform that brings people together. Therefore, I'm not thinking about a specific reader. I'm thinking about everybody. Um, and if I were to focus on one reader, I would risk excluding others. So it's really about inclusion. It's been five months. What are you most proud of at Venice Media? Uh, you know, it's uh, been an unbelievable ride so far. I'm so grateful that people have been so supportive. There's a lot of things that I'm, I'm proud of. I'm, I'm proud of my team, people who have worked endlessly the entire summer. Uh, you know, so one of the things that's unique about Venice and my arrangement with The Advocate was that I always retained the rights to all of my intellectual property. Uh, that's something I learned in music school. And uh, we spent an enormous amount of time taking that data from a different format and putting it all onto Venice and... Um, I made extraordinary demands on my team over the summer and they came through. So I'm very proud of our team, Marcia, James Forsyth, uh, our coders who um, I would ask them to do something and they'd say, it'll be done in an hour. It'll, it'll be done on Sunday. It'll be done on Saturday. The people who worked tirelessly and it was a lot of work to take 25,000 reviews, all of those videos, all of those verticals and put them into a structured data format, which we have now. Um, the design of the, of the website. I mean, I just basically said I had a top-down vision of what I wanted it to look like, but other people obviously executed on that. Again, our team, uh, we developed the mobile site of our uh, mobile version of our site. So you can do everything on a smartphone, Apple or any other platform. You can watch all the videos, of course, search for wines. So my biggest source of pride is just, I'm so proud of our team and everything that they have been able to do in such a short period of time, because as I said, I put an enormous amount of stress on them. I said to them, I am not slowing down during this time, which was kind of crazy. In fact, that you know, I started going to Bordeaux too, because Bordeaux, Bordeaux and Crafted Spirits are the next two areas that Venice is going to move into. So I took a trip to Bordeaux that I had never, that was not part of my schedule previously. And I said to my team, I am not slowing down during this time. Uh, from the time I left the advocate till now, I said, I am going to keep my exact same schedule. I'm going to churn out the same amount of content as before or more because now we're doing a lot of other stuff. And I said, you guys have to figure out a way to take care of all of this operational data stuff. And they did. So uh, that's what I'm most proud of. And the second thing that is maybe not something I'm most proud of, but something that I'm very happy to see is that um, I like my writing much more now. Um, I feel much more creative. I feel turned on all the time. I feel inspired all the time. You know, athletes talk about being in a zone. Um, and, you know, I just feel like this is a period of extraordinary and intense creativity for me personally. And, um, you know, maybe I just needed a change, but it's just such an unbelievable feeling uh, to, to, to see and to, and, to, and to just feel that energy. James Forsyth, he also went to MIT. Where did you uh, end up meeting? Well, so our, our team is really an MIT core team because... Uh, 
obviously Marzia was with me those those two years there. And then um, another friend of mine was the first person I met at, at MIT, Alex Lukopoulos. He's you know, one of my closest friends, probably my closest friend, and he's been instrumental in helping us uh, through this sort of early period. And then through Alex, I met James, who also went to MIT, but he's a few years younger. I eat a lot, <laughs> if that's okay. Uh, and so, um, but... James, yeah. So James is one of one of the one of my friends from MIT, but he embodies the qualities of people that we're looking for. Totally selfless, totally dedicated to the business, totally dedicated to our vision. He loves wine. He's got a great palate, and he's got a great sense for a lot of things. Art. His parents are architects, so he's got a great aesthetic. Uh, he understands the financial world, and he's just a sort of multifaceted kind of Renaissance guy. Uh, and so. Uh, he's just been a tremendous part of our, our team, as have been Marcia and Alex. So you mentioned moving into Bordeaux and into Crafted Spirits. What was your view on the ground at Bordeaux? I mean, it's an area where maybe once again, there, there may be a marketing problem in the United States. Uh, what did you think when you got there? Well, look, I mean, I grew up with those wines. And um, obviously, I'm not talking first growth type stuff, but but I've been around those wines my entire life. And... Um, you know, Bordeaux is interesting, right? I mean, it was, uh, it's a classic wine. Then it was out of favor because it's the wine your grandparents like or your parents like. Then there was this boom in Asia. Then um, Asia, you know, sort of a very bad term because Asia is so much more than just one word. But, you know, in Hong Kong and China, Singapore, this massive boom of interest in Bordeaux. And then people figured out, hey, there's 20,000 cases of this wine. I'd rather buy Rumier, you know, Musigny. There's a barrel and a half. It's much more exclusive. Uh, and so now there's a massive cooling of interest that appears in those wines. But to me, Bordeaux is a classic and classics never go out of style. It's like a book, uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird or Moby Dick or whatever. I mean, those things are classics. They don't ever go out of style, whether your parents drank it or your grandparents drank it or whatever. And so I think I'm really attracted to those wines because to me, they are just, just like those books. There's a time and a place, uh, very rarely disappoint at the top level. And so, uh, I don't know, I just have an affinity probably for things that are kind of timeless like that. Uh, music is the same way. So uh, to me, I never really saw the, again, I just, I, I, the value to me in Bordeaux is really about that timelessness. And so, yeah, there's probably a marketing problem, uh, but that's kind of their own making. You know, prices are, nobody can afford these wines anymore. And who's gonna drink them, you know? But, you know, I, there's nothing I can do about that. I mean, I, there too, I sense that there is a resistance of people to want to spend time there. You know, when I worked at the Advocate, I had no T&E budget. I just, you know, I'd ask Bob, he'd say, if you think it's, if you think it's a good investment of your time and our money, do it. That was it. Laissez-faire. I run Venice the exact same way. Uh, if I think it's worth going, I go. Um, we don't have anybody to report to. Um, I don't have anybody putting any limits on me, which is unbelievable. And if I need to spend two weeks in Bordeaux or two weeks in Burgundy, I just go. And I believe that the money is very well invested in proprietary on the ground information that is going to be totally differentiated. You know, I spent a month in Tuscany this past summer. I spent six weeks in Tuscany in 2013, but I spent in Chianti Classico a week or so in April and then another week and then another month, like between June and July. And I wrote the best article on Tuscan wines I had ever written. 
because I was there, because I saw, because I tasted all the experimental wines people are working on, because I went to see vineyards. You know, you can't look at the cost of that. It's, it's, I mean, you can, but I don't look at it that way. I'm just like a winemaker who says, the hell with, you know, yields or production. I want to make the best wine. And, uh, I'm inspired by especially young winemakers who are risking everything, just like we're risking everything with Finnis. But my approach to writing is the same as any high quality wine producer. I'm interested in quality, 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 quality. Then whatever else has to happen, however else the expenses are paid, we'll deal with it, you know? And But I'm not interested in short-term metrics necessarily. So uh, in Bordeaux, I sense the same thing. It's like, yeah, a lot of people go and taste the wines, but the reporting is a little on the superficial side, you know, for me. Um, and I think that those wines, they probably deserve a little bit more love uh, and attention, uh, even though it's very commercial. But, you know, I do the same thing in Champagne. You know, I go and taste wines that are never going to be sold. You know, go taste 32 Van Clare with, with Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon at Roterer. Those wines are all going to be part of other wines. I taste them for my own culture because hopefully I can explain Cristal and the other wines, Cristal Rosé, when they're released with a little bit more insight. Um, and I sense the same thing in Bordeaux that I, I think there's an opportunity there to really write about these wines in a in a more personal way. And they are the established benchmarks. One of the times that was very exciting in the wine advocate's progression of, of many things that it did was charting the Garage East right bank kind of I could say revolution or certainly turn of events. I mean, it was exciting to hear about these small producers that were doing small production wines the way they wanted to do it, not hewing to the rules of that were set by some faceless bureaucrat, but doing what they wanted to do. It, it, to me, reading about it, it sounded very cool. Is there something today in Bordeaux that's around the corner that we just haven't heard much about that is the undiscovered Great White Whale, if there's classic books? Well, I mean, I think that it's, a, you know, quite frankly, it's a region that I'm, you know, it takes a while, you know, you, you start to, you become a student, you know, uh, it's another thing I learned from music is that the great musicians are always students. And so my approach to wine, my relationship with wine is to always be a student. And so with Bordeaux specifically, you know, I'm still formulating, I'm still thinking, I'm still tasting. I haven't, you know, reached any sort of grand overarching conclusion yet. Um, but you know, these are things that come over time. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I visited a, a number of unbelievable estates uh, this spring, not, not not just the famous ones. And uh, I think there's, to me, what is probably the story that needs to be told is more a story of terroir. Probably if I could do what I wanted without regards to anything else as I would start to separate left and right bank. It's almost like, it's just two different worlds. It's like, I don't even know, how can you even consider these things even the same? I mean, you know, that that's the first observation, but, and nobody does that, right? Nobody says, you know, it's like Bordeaux, on Primor, these are the scores, you know? And, and what about starting to understand a little bit more of the terroir? I mean, you know, this was a very complicated year for Bordeaux. I was there for a week in May, it rained every single day. And you see some vineyards that are perfectly farmed for that time of the year. And you see other places that aren't. And, I, you know, I think there is an opportunity to, to write about these wines again in a more personal terroir driven kind of way. Um, you know, like I started to do in California. So we'll see, it's a work in progress. There's a fairly small number of wine publications that also cover craft spirits. It's something you've uh, said verbally that you made a commitment to. I've seen gift guides come out previously. Uh, what do you think about what's going on in spirits and why did you decide to get into the coverage of that? Well, we drink them, we love them. 
I think similarly minded people are going to like them. I think that um, a lot of these craft spirits are all, they're very, pardon the pun, but they're kind of vinous and and they're they're they've got character. They speak of a place, of a year, of a person who made them. And to me, it's the next one of the next revolutions in wine and spirits. Let's say, I mean, you know, you had in the '80s this drive to estate bottle wines, Burgundy, Piedmont. Um, more recently, we've seen the same movement in Champagne. And craft spirits represents sort of the next evolution in that. Obviously, the production is much smaller in a lot of the cases than with wine. You're dealing about a barrel or two of this or that. But um, I think craft spirits represent a lot of the values that we love in high quality wine. Um, artisan approach, handmade, unique, speak of a time and a place and a vintage. And to me, it's uh, a very obvious area that we that we should be paying attention to you know and then there's also a passion you know it's not just about um it's not just about intellectually appreciating something but this is what we drink at home this is what we love and uh and i want to write about that for for our readers so you've introduced several features to the site you mentioned the mobile feature you mentioned the video uh, I've noticed there's also a bulletin board where people can ask and interact questions with both you and other people uh, who subscribe to the site. There's a lot of photography. What other features are going to develop with the site? Well, you know, it's it's just been interesting to watch this whole thing be born. The the the, um, the bulletin board is a great example. You know, we're obviously five months old, as as, as you said. Uh, we're just getting started, and even though we do have you know this incredible global sort of start. Um, the bulletin board has been a great source of uh, of pleasure to watch this thing just sort of come out of nowhere. And now it's extremely active, very proud of that. Um, you know, and as I've said, I sort of view Venice as kind of the intersection of wine criticism, what I've always done with art, which is, means the photography, uh, technology, which I'll get back to in a second, and then sort of the multimedia aspect, the video. So the two things that were, you know, where I th where there's still a lot of, that we want to do one is on technology you know we we um as you said we did do the mobile site over the summer now we've introduced venice playlists which allows you to say these are my 10 favorite napa valley wines or my 10 favorite tuscany wines and you'll be able to share those with people eventually and that's kind of the building block for a lot of other stuff that we have going on um, but sort of our next big priority is to really um, execute on the vision that we laid out from day one which is that venice is really a platform um I view Venice as, not just me, but our, t our team views Venice as um, sort of like what ESPN was for sports 30 years ago, or CNN for news, or MTV for music, a real global platform. And so the next step for us is to introduce other voices. So um, hopefully in the you know, pretty near future, we're gonna be bringing on another major critic to cover other parts of the world. Uh, and then parallel to that, we're gonna introduce a uh, sort of a rotating column where people who have insight, people in the business, they could be in the business or out of the business. I'm really interested. What we're really looking for is people who have some something really interesting to say. Um, we're going to create a, a, a rotating column where people can write an article occasionally if they wish uh, on something that they're passionate about. It'll be their point of view, like an editorial. You know, we won't edit it or anything. It'll just be somebody's opinion on something, you know? Um, and again, with the goal of trying to, of building this, you know, this, this community of voices, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who have something important and interesting to share with the world, and they may not have a forum to do it. And Venice will be that forum globally. So um, one, one or two sort of full-time writers doing critical reviews, and then side by side, uh, sort of a column of rotating guest writers who want to 
tell us about something that I may not know anything about, which is what I'm hoping that that column will be. You know, let's do Alsace. Let's talk about Riesling. Let's talk about Argentinian wine. Let's talk about, you know, the Jura. I don't know, uh, just some ideas. But, you know, to really broaden our coverage and to uh, really execute on our vision of really making Venice a community that sort of speaks to everybody who loves wine and everything around wine. You're a man who makes, as you said, long-term commitments and long-term goals. If you look back in 10 years and then in 20 years, what are you going to be the most proud of with this new project? You know, it's it's funny. Last night I watched this interview. Charlie Rose interviewed Thomas Keller and, and Grant Ackerts, and uh, I thought it was uh, brilliant. And, uh, you know, listening to Grant say he had to leave the French Laundry to have his own vision, you know, it just really resonated and uh, so I'm really proud that we had the guts to do our own thing. You live once, you got to go for it. You have to take risks. You have to be prepared to fail. Um, I want my kids, I've got two young kids. I want them to be fearless. I want them to pursue their dreams. I want them to think that they can achieve whatever they want. And so if I want to instill those values in my kids, then I have to live by them myself with Marcia. And so... What I'm most proud of is that we're pursuing our dream, we're risking everything, career, family, money, the whole thing, to pursue our dream and our passion. And that to me is the only way you can even have a chance of being fulfilled in life. You, like Steve Jobs used to say, you have to really believe that you're doing important work. And I'm just, that's what I'm proud of, that, that we're going for it. Antonio Galoni, he started in musical composition and he's still writing notes today for Venice Media. Thank you very much for being here. Levy, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for your time. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.